Today we're in John chapter 9. We've been preaching through the book of John. It's been a total treasure chest for us to, to, to go through and to uh, just have the Lord at such a detailed level for us to see all the treasures that are in there. We do have Bibles on the t- table over here. Um, if you don't have a Bible, please take one of those. It's a gift to you. Um, we also have what are called scripture journals, which it's only the book of John where every other page is blank. So if maybe you're, you have a Bible, but you're not comfortable writing in it or anything, uh, we would love for you to take one of those scripture journals as well. And if it'll be a blessing to you, we also have the, the verses up on the screen. If you just want to relax and just take it in that way, um, we, we would love for you to receive the word of God in the way that, it's, um, uh, that it would be helpful. And so verse 1 of John chapter 9 says, as he passed by Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground. Jesus spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent, And he went and washed and came back seeing. And there there are a lot of observations to focus on here. One is that Jesus is finally back just with the disciples. We've gone weeks with him talking with really religious uh, elite people that have been resisting him, having no room for Jesus in their lives. And now Jesus and his disciples are just alone And his disciples ask him a totally genuine question. This man here, born blind, been blind his entire life, whose fault is it? And man, I think what they are thinking is what we usually think, is that if something bad, if something hard, if something unfortunate happens, someone is to blame. Surely someone is to blame. Something is to blame. And that, that's where we go. Who should we blame? And uh, a major point for us to embrace from Jesus and what Jesus is saying this morning is that pain has a purpose. Pain has a purpose. This man is not blind because of his sin. He's not blind for a lifetime because of his parents' sin. They did something wrong. Um, But to realize that a a great amount of suffering comes, this guy, like I think even if you picture someone being blind, and we don't have anyone in in our church at this point who who has been blind their entire life, it's going to be a gigantic challenge being born blind and what that means for work and schooling and uh, all, all these things. But in first century Roman society, there was even a deeper level of suffering there weren't. There wasn't things like social security. There, there, there weren't. Um, um, there weren't benefits. There, there weren't like 
ways to provide places to live. There weren't like help in finding work. Um, if you are blind, that is this, just the beginning of your pain and just the beginning of your suffering. And uh, the reason for all of this that's given, the purpose is that the works of God might be displayed in him. His pain has a purpose. And what we, we have to observe and see is that the purpose is significant. So like, you know, if Jesus would have said like, hey, I know this huge pain in your life, it's resulting in a person being to eat, able to eat a Snickers bar. Or something, you'd just be like, what? A lifetime of pain so a person can eat a Snickers bar? Like, that, that's, no. Like, that's not worth the pain. The, the, the pain is not significant enough. But for Jesus, who is about to experience the most pain that any human has ever experienced, he's aware of this, getting ready to carry the sins of the world on his back to a cross to take it off of our backs and to alleviate us of it. For Jesus to say that this man's lifetime of pain has a dignified purpose, a powerful result coming from it, and the result is to display the works of God. And if you think little of God, you know, like I think a Snickers bar is like this big, you know, like it's little and insignificant, right? And if, if a view of God is that size, then it's going to be like, man, a lifetime of pain. But the, if the Lord, and maybe he'll do this even today in your heart for the first time, if God reveals his grandness to you, and if the Lord has revealed to you his eternal love and power and peace and grandness for, for even John the Baptist, who is known as one of the greatest, the greatest prophet that's ever lived. And one of his things he's known for saying is, I need to decrease so he can increase in my life, which is actually you being who you are designed to be. And, um, and so if God has revealed himself to you, his pain, the pain of this guy has such a glorious purpose. And our pain has a purpose that is worthy of the pain, and it's not meaningless. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, you might want to write maybe next to this passage in John 9, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 speaks to this as well as it says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So Jesus communicates this to us, that our pain has a purpose, and then he's able to just effortlessly show us how easy he can heal. He's been talking to religious people who can't see Jesus. They physically can see, but with their physical sight, they can't see Jesus standing right in front of them for who he is. And so Jesus, coming off of that conversation, literally goes up to a person who's been blind his entire life and allows him to see he makes mud. This is like, why would he have to do this? If he can effortlessly heal, why does he have to spit on the ground and make mud? And so some people have, have, have connected the reality that we were, that man was first made 
from the ground. And so because man was first made, Adam was first made from the ground, and Jesus is remaking a people, he is known as the new Adam even, that uh, he's possibly using dirt to show that he's bringing new life, a new creation about and uh, is opening the eyes of people. Um, So uh, possibility there. Uh, There's also a lot of humility in this miracle. It's uh, interesting, uh, Kevin and I were even talking uh, through 2 Kings 5 earlier this week and how um, Elisha, a guy comes, a Naaman, who's this military general who's not typically followed the ways of God, and Naaman has leprosy, and he is wanting to be healed of his leprosy. He comes up to Elisha, prophet, and Elisha goes, oh, go in the water seven times and you'll be healed. And he's like, I ain't doing that. Like, if you can heal me, just do it right now. Like, why would I have to go to all the trouble of going seven times and whatever? And he didn't show any humility by actually the process. And thankfully, he had a guy there that was like, you should do this, you know? And he did it, and he was healed. And so there's a humility in this guy who has just had Jesus, like, rub wet mud on his face and say, like, hey, go over there and wash, and you'll be healed. And the guy says, okay. I believe you. I believe what you're telling me. And he actually is able to hear God's words to him where um, these blind people uh, who can actually see um, are not listening to him. And, uh, and here's, he does what Jesus says. He can now see. And then look, something incredible happens. Look at the end of verse 7. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. He went and he washed and he came back seeing. He comes back to Jesus. And I, I know like that might feel like, oh yeah, of course he did. Well, what can happen, and this happens to Jesus, Jesus heals a whole group of people at one time and one person comes back. And you know what that means? Only one person was actually better for the healing. Because the others just kind of went off and were still far from him. And what can happen is that you love the gift and not the giver. And you receive the gift, and with that gift, you, you go away. And what I love is that this guy can see for the first time in his life. And he could be like, oh, I've always wondered what the temple looks like. I've always wanted to know. Yeah, I mean, there's all of this stuff that he could even selfishly, you know, like, like use his sight for. And what I love is with his new sight, he wants to see Jesus. I mean, that's like awesomely powerful, I think, is like he is wanting to use his gift to see the giver of the gift and to actually come to the giver of the gift. And then the next 26 verses... We're going to move quicker through some of this section. But the next 26 verses are people arguing about what's just happened. And the reason that they're arguing is because this guy and his parents, who it seems like they have faithfully been part of their synagogue, which was the Old Testament church in their community, and they've been part of the synagogue and they've been following the teachings of God, but the religious leaders 
of the synagogue have made a law that if you give your life to Jesus, you're kicked out of the church. You're kicked out of the synagogue. Anybody who comes to Jesus is kicked out of the synagogue, which means you're kicked out of your community. You are now removed from your community and all the benefits that you had in your community, you're now kicked out of that. So the religious leaders are trying to figure out who healed you. If it was Jesus and if you're following him, we need to know that right now because we need to kick you out of our community. And so then on top of that, Jesus is picking a fight. He really is. Jesus is picking a fight. And I, I love this. We've seen this multiple times in the book of John already. Jesus is not afraid to pick a fight because he's fighting for us. He's fighting for our freedom. He's fighting for our understanding. Um, we'll have some, uh, two weeks from now, there'll be an incredible passage where He's even refusing to answer some questions because they're asking the questions on their terms and not on his terms. And so how Jesus is picking a fight here is he did this on the Sabbath. So he decided to heal this guy knowing it was illegal to do something like that on the Sabbath. And he's like, let's just get all of our cards on the table. I'm the king of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of all this stuff. I'm going to do this in the way that makes you the most furious that you could possibly be, because I am furious for you. I am after you, and I don't want to play religious games. Like, I actually want you to see me for who I am, and, and I don't want your little playing at church thing to keep going. I want you to actually know who I am. And so he pushes against their laws that lost God at the heart of it. He himself was actually the one who brought the law to them, and they've used it in a way that they have no room for the living God in their life. And so let's pick up in verse 18, saying, The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. So the Jews are like, oh, I don't think this guy was blind. That's how we're going to get around all this stuff, because they're not. <laughs> there's no way they're going to actually change themselves. So the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until... They called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? And then, does he now see? Verse 20, his parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes, which is interesting. They're given that it was a person. You know, it wasn't just like took some good vitamins or something. You know, so they're saying, we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Verse 22 is very telling. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he is to be put out of the synagogue. So his parents are trying to save face here and say, you need to talk to him because we like our community. <laughs> And if we say Jesus did this, we're going to be kicked out of our community. Verse 23, therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Staring them straight in the face is the reality that Jesus has just radically healed a man who has always been known to be blind, and they don't have eyes to see it. They don't have a heart that's open to the idea that the creator and the sustainer of life, the healer of all that is broken, has just displayed his works through this man. Remember how Jesus said it, like, 
that this pain has a purpose, and the purpose is that the people can see the works of God. And now the people aren't receiving that purpose. They're resisting that purpose, and, and they're foolishly searching for some answer other than the answer they don't like. So let's try and figure out some answer that's not the answer that we don't like. And a major point I think not here to miss is that the masses are blind and comfortable. The masses are blind and comfortable. Although these people can physically see they're blind. And the crowd would rather be swept up in finding a non-Jesus answer for what's just happened. That it keeps everybody blind, but it keeps everybody in their comfortable community. The person who acknowledges Jesus has done this will be thrown out of the synagogue, which for these people is can't even be considered. And they'd rather stay blind in their little community than have their eyes opened at the risk of what they have going on right now. And Matthew 7, 13 through 14, I feel like speaks directly to this concept too. Um, Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 13, and this might be good to note next to John 9 as well, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The man who can now see is brought back in for questioning and grilled by the people again. So verse 24. So for the second time, verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, which he could say like, I am. <laughs> I really am. But they're using this for kind of code language for our definition of our little God in our box. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Jesus. We know that Jesus is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered him, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be his disciples? <laughs> Are you wanting me to teach you the ways of Jesus? I can kick us all out of this room, but I can. And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Gosh, I mean, Moses is falling on his face before Jesus. I think Moses would be like, don't bring me into this. <laughs> I'm with Jesus. Moses was on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus and Elijah. Verse 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. He's, if you listen to him, you would know. Verse 30, the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. This is the, the guy who's blind. Why, this is an amazing thing. You, don't, you do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. They kicked him out of the community. The blind man can see physically, 
But what we see here is he can also see spiritually. God has opened his physical eyes and opened his eyes. He allowed Jesus to open his eyes, open the eyes of his heart. He is cast out by his community for it. And I think an interesting lesson here is that a blind man sees and suffers. Like, I mean, him having his sight restored to him was beautiful. Then he was removed from his community for that. His temporary suffering has led people to see the works of God. But this time, all he really knows, and this is fascinating, all that he knows is that God has done this, and he thinks maybe it was a great prophet like Elisha that did this, who God used to open his eyes. So then the beauty of verse 35 is that Jesus privately seeks him out. Jesus heard, uh, verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, isn't that beautiful? It's just awesome. Like He's like, hey, I'm going to privately go find this guy. Not bring a camera crew. You know, He cares about this guy. And he's heard that he's just suffered for the sake of, of, um, of Jesus. So Jesus heard that they had cast him out. Having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? which I love that. He's like, there's a yes on the table. (laughs) I I give you a yes. I believe in the Son of Man. Would you point him to me? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So, you know, you you have the blind man who's truly blind, and God allows him to see. But I think what Jesus is saying here at the end is, um, is, I've been revealing myself to you left and right, and you keep giving me the stiff arm. After a while, you don't have any excuse that you're blind. Like, you're not blind. You are just guilty of resisting me for a lifetime. Jesus asks him if he believes the Son of Man. Do you believe the Son of Man? And I think just part of, like, when I became a Christian in college, and I had really, I mean, I'd heard kind of some Bible stories here and there, but I might have, you know, like on a quiz of 100 Bible facts, I might have like gotten lucky and gotten two questions right, maybe. Just felt like I didn't know anything about, about what was in here. And, but I think a graciousness to the Lord in all of us is, you know, like if you told me I have to read like a John Grisham novel, like a John Grisham novel every day for the rest of my life, that would sound like dreadful. And nothing against John Grisham too, but it's just like, after a while, I'm going to be like, I'm done. <laughs> you know, like, I'm, I'm fine. I don't, I don't need to read anymore, you know. A beautiful thing about the treasures that are in Scripture is that you, I've been around people who have multiple PhDs in things connected to the Bible, and they're hungry, and they're not feeling satisfied because they realize that they're like at 
base camp one of Mount Everest, you know, and have so much more of things of the Lord to learn and to grow in. And, you know, one of my hopes as we preach through books of the Bible is that we will grow in, in really understanding, like, the nuance and the beauty of what is actually happening in, in the text. And, and so when Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man, he's kind of using code language to a person who's grown up in church, so to speak, um, to this man, because the Son of Man is someone that they were yearning for and that we should be yearning for, and it's a direct quote from several prophecies in the Old Testament, but Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to see, that we've already seen this multiple times, but like Daniel chapter 7 is a powerful passage that is, so when he says son of man, Daniel chapter 7 should just flood into our hearts and into our minds. Uh, Daniel 7, 13 through 14 says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, I mean, that is the definition of son of man is this description of the king of the greatest kingdom that will never end and is given to him by the ancient of days. And just recently, Jesus has said, before Abraham was, I am. I am eternal I'm eternally existing before Abraham. And now he goes up to this guy who's just, been, just received sight. He's like, do you believe the son of man? And he's like, if you tell me who he is, I'm a yes. And he says, I am him. You know, to be face to face with the one who fulfills Daniel chapter 7, I mean, is like your knees stop working. <laughs> and you find like unable to support your body and you fall on your face. And what you see he does is it says he worships him. He worships Jesus. Fascinating, this is the only place in the book of John where someone worships Jesus. It's the only place in the book of John. There are people who are favorably responding to Jesus. It's the only place in the book of John where someone worships Jesus. And remember, like, there's a Ten Commandment saying, worship God alone. Right? Don't worship idols, worship only God. So for this guy to worship Jesus and for Jesus to receive that worship is instantly connecting all the dots that, like, my creator is standing in front of me. I am worshiping him, and Jesus says, I receive your worship. And he is also saying, that's who I am. You are right. He came into the world so that those of us who hadn't been able to see would see. We have a man living in a great deal of pain, and he finds a great purpose in a lifetime of pain. And on the heels of the best day of his life, he's thrown out of his community. But now he can truly see, and the greatest human to ever live, God his creator, befriends him. And the son of man, he sees him for who he is, he believes, he worships him. And that's his story. And man, would it be each of our stories? Like that in our pain, being befriended by the Son of Man, 
believing, worshiping him, no matter the cost. Um, that's been many of our stories and might be someone's story starting today, saying, I, I believe, I give my life to you. Give, give my life to you to, uh, to change me, to heal me, to restore me, to take my sin away. And so communion, um, communion is a physical picture of where we're stepping into this morning. But there isn't anything magical in like drinking wine or juice. Um, where the power is is that we're actually communing with our living Savior. And that, that we are, so, so even if you, like no matter where you are right now, like our, our step should be towards him. Just as the blind man was like, um, and some might be like, I need physical healing today. But just as the blind man was like, I see now, I want to see Jesus. I want to be near him. I want to come near him. And so this was actually designed by Jesus for us to draw near to him, to commune with him. And so the way that, that we do it here is TJ and Kaylin will um, tear off a piece of bread, and it might be a big hunk of bread. Don't feel weird by that in the sense of like, um, he is lavish in what he gives us, Jesus is. And so, um, so it's okay if it even chews a little bit. This is kind of how they did it when Jesus first taught us how to do this. Um, but if you just walk up like with your hands like this, they'll place uh, some bread in your hand and say, this is the body of Jesus given for you. So when we take, take the bread, it, it is the body of Jesus given for us that we're, we're believing like he lived in our place, the life we couldn't live. Uh, then scripture tells us that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Like Jesus held back not one ounce of himself, died for us so that we can have life in him. Gratefully, he conquered death. He's alive and well. He is working here. And so we have wine or juice there. Obey your conscience. Um, but a very appropriate thing for us to do is to meet with him. And even search, ask him, like, search my heart. Um, man, show me things that, that you want me to grow in, that you want me to bring to you, that you want me to repent of. Um, but and then for some it might be, I don't know who this Jesus is, but I'm feeling strangely drawn to him. And if that's you, you don't have to raise your hand, you don't have to talk to me, you don't have to walk down the aisle, you just have to say, I'm yours, Jesus. It's easy for us and it costs him his life. But, uh, but he came all the way to us, and our response would be to say, I believe, I'm yours. And I would encourage you, give your life to him, and then come and share with somebody, because you'll have a whole lot of, of new things that, that God will show you right away that will be super powerful. Uh, but for all of us, let's, let's meet with him, and let's respond. Let's come to him. And then, if, if you would, uh, we'll come down the center aisle, take the elements, and then remain standing together, and we'll take it together as family. So let's come.